Welcome back to A Bit of Fun with Emily. It's me, your host, Emily. I am glad you're here. It's season seven where we're exploring some of the biggest summer blockbusters of all time. We've taken a look at Jaws, the movie that started it all, and Top Gun because it's fun, um, because it's always the right time to talk about Top Gun. But today we're discussing a blockbuster that's in my top 10 favorite movies of all time, a movie that terrified me as a kid when I went to the theater and still terrifies me a bit today when I saw it in the theater not that long ago. I watched it a lot, actually, because of the soundtrack, just an iconic main score, because Sam Neill is very sexy in this movie. He's rugged and resilient and kind of grouchy, and there's just something very attractive about that. And because dinosaurs. Yes, today we're talking about 1993's Jurassic Park. Have I seen all of the other movies in the franchise? Yes, I think so, at least. (laughs) And while they accomplish what they're made to do, put big dinosaurs on the screen with lots of tension and running, none of them are in any way a competition to the original. I like what-if movies. They're safe. They let you walk in the shoes of an idea without the consequence of that idea, and yet they force you to confront those consequences. Think about them. Sit in them a little bit. Because seriously, what if? What if we are one day stupid enough to clone creatures that died millions of years ago but had complete dominance of the Earth while on it? I, I don't know. I'm just drawn to those kind of movies because I don't have to worry Hopefully that they'll come true, uh, but I can kind of see what might happen if they did. The this is the second Spielberg film on the list. I think it's the last one as well. But he absolutely deserves to be on this list twice. This came out post all three Indiana Jones movies and two years before he released Hook, which is a fun movie despite the fact that it's an hour too long. This was, of course, based on the novel by Michael Crichton. Spielberg had approached Crichton a few years before, in 89, about potentially bringing this book to the big screen. The screenplay was written by David Cope, whose IMDb is not too shabby. Fun fact, I did a little quick internet research and learned that if it says screenplay, that typically means there's a separate credit for the story writer, which in this instance goes to Crichton. If the same writer is the author of both the story and the screenplay, it says written by. How interesting is that little fun fact for your for your day? Very interesting. Um, so Cope's, and I think that's how you say his name, uh, his filmography also includes Death Becomes Her. Great movie. Mission Impossible, Stir of Echoes, Panic Room, 2002's Spider-Man, so the first Tobey Maguire outing, and War of the Worlds. There are also several more I'm familiar with and a few that I wish I wasn't, but so it goes. The movie came out in 1993 and of course stars Sam Neill, Laura Dern, Jeff Goldblum, Richard Attenborough, B.D. Wong, and Samuel L. Jackson, which is the most wonderful surprise when you see him. You know what? There were some really good movies that came out the summer of 93. Ivan Reitman's Dave, starring Kevin Kline and Sigourney Weaver. Great comedy. Kenneth Branagh's Much Ado About Nothing, one of my favorite Jane Austen adaptations, but we'll get to that in an upcoming season of the podcast. My Neighbor Totoro with by Hayao Miyazaki, which 
we'll also get to soonish Super Mario Brothers, which we've already determined wasn't good, but I loved it anyway. Last action hero, Dennis the Menace with Christopher Lloyd, who is always a good time. Sleepless in Seattle, Son-in-Law with Polly Shore. I remember checking that one out a few times from the video store in Greencastle, Indiana, when we go to stay at my grandparents' lake house. I don't think anybody else liked it, but I found it highly amusing. Uh, Rookie of the Year, Free Willy, Hocus Pocus, which is so oddly released in July. I Somebody, I was telling a coworker that she said, well, maybe they were hoping for the VHS release or the DVD release in October. So that makes sense to me. Robin Hood, Men in Tights, The Fugitive, ah, The Secret Garden, a favorite, and Surf Ninjas, stupid, but fun. And one I remember seeing at the drive-in, actually. That was quite the summer, 93. Jurassic Park had a budget of about $63 million and made a little over $47 million its opening weekend. It would then go on to gross over $404 million domestically and over $1 billion worldwide. It held the title of highest grossing movie for four years until it was unseated by Titanic in 97. As for the pessimistic summary... And it is a little pessimistic. A very rich man gets it in his head that it would be an awesome idea to use bad science to clone dinosaurs from DNA found in bugs that were fossilized in amber millions of years before. When it works, he gets the even worse idea to create an amusement park and to fill that amusement park with said dinosaurs who very much want to kill the, vi- the visitors, which they try to do when the very rich man invites a paleontologist a paleobotanist, a mathematician, and his grandchildren to the park to prove to a, a sniveling lawyer that it's safe. Spoiler, it's not, because dinosaurs are very scary, and only the individuals deemed important, quotes important, in the movie actually get to survive. The end. <laughs> Pes- pessimistic summary, yes, but this movie is absolutely genius and still ho- holds up today, which is mind-blowing considering the advances in CGI. It's violent and scary and raises some absolutely important issues about nature and science and morality. Goldblum has one of my all-time favorite movie lines. So the group is sitting around a dining table in the visitor center of Jurassic Park, talking about the behind the scenes tour they just took of the labs where the dinosaurs are being cloned. The very rich man, John Hammond, played by Richard Attenborough, is completely oblivious to the dangers that he's creating and is laughing with the lawyer about all of the possibilities and money that could be made. He's on cloud nine and so excited to get people into the park to enjoy, but the scientists are leery. They're skeptical. They're actually a little afraid. And Goldblum, as the mathematician, the chaotician, Dr. Malcolm, says, the lack of humility before nature that's being displayed here staggers me. Genetic powers, the most awesome force the planet's ever seen, but you willed it like a kid that's found his dad's gun. And then he shifts from calm to almost anxious. He, he gets kind of agitated. He makes the comment that the scientific power that's being used is dangerous because it didn't require any discipline to attain. It was built off the backs of work done before. And so they're acting as if the responsibility of what could happen falls in the past and not the present. Hammond tries to defend his work and says, no, you don't realize what we've actually accomplished. But then Malcolm says, yeah, but your scientists were so preoccupied with whether or not they could, they didn't stop to think if they should. 
That line right there has stuck with me and comes to mind more often than I'd care to admit as I kind of watch what's going on in the world. And not just with science, with so many decisions being made that at the political level, at the scientific level, at the academic level, uh, actually even in the homes that you you worried so much and got so excited about whether or not you could that you never stopped to consider whether or not you should. And once you've done it, once you've let that cat out of the bag, putting him back in or her in or, you know, the herd that you've released, you can't herd those cats. It's just, I don't know. It's very, very interesting. And that has always stuck with me. And plus it's Goldblum. I mean, come on, Goldblum. As far as I'm concerned, That's the whole thesis of this movie, consequence of actions, not giving nature its due credit, hubris and ignorance, which is in no way a segue to the next segment, but we're going to use it as one anyway. Why wouldn't I have survived this movie if I had magically appeared at Jurassic Park? Um... Some For some reason, they decide, you know what, we need to bring her on the island to help convince the lawyers that uh, this is a good idea. Would I have survived? Mm-hmm. No. <laughs> Why? Well, number one, I would have just curled up into a fetal position and promptly been eaten by a very hungry, carnivorous dinosaur. Well, you know, that's really if I had to be the adult. But even then, I... I I feel sorry for the kids because I give them zero chance to live as well. If I had been in the position of Alan and I had to care for these children, there's a very good chance I would have just climbed into one of those tall trees and stayed there until someone found us or we died or fell out of the tree, which if we're being honest is very likely. But if someone else was taking the lead, if Dr. Grant was there to keep me alive, which we'll discuss in just a second in the next part, Maybe I would have had like an extra 5% chance of living. Number two, another reason. This is the jungle. (laughs) Well, I find the ecosystem of jungles absolutely fascinating. I also find them terrifying and just living, breathing death traps, kind of like how I feel about the continent of Australia. I'm a trip hazard. Good news. I wouldn't have taken out either of the kids, but I definitely would have gone down on one of the roots of one of those very large trees, probably broken a leg, and then I get eaten by a dinosaur. Uh, Like when the characters are in the clearing and they spy a herd of the Gallimimus grazing quietly until the T-Rex shows up and initiates a stampede. Every certainty, every certainty, I would have fallen down and gotten trampled like Mufasa (laughs) and the wildebeests, which is a horrible visual. And number three, finally, if my survival is dependent on absolute silence, then I am also dead. Immediately dead. I am unintentionally the world's loudest librarian. If I'm not falling down, I'm accidentally bumping into things that then fall down and cause a ruckus. The kitchen scene where Tim and Lux are hiding from the raptors, I'm the snack. I mean, there is no scenario I get around that kitchen quietly, which they don't do well either, but you just throw me in and that's a horrible situation. But maybe I'm the snack that distracts the velociraptors from the kids and they get away, which I think I could live with as long as they ate me quickly. Like one bite and I was dead, I think I'd be okay. But now why, why do I think the characters shouldn't have survived either? So first let's talk about Dr. Alan Grant. Would I want him in my corner? Absolutely. He's grouchy, stoic, sensible. He'd keep us focused and moving forward, which I love. 
But I think it's misleading to assume this scientist that works with bones would be athletic enough to climb trees and scale electric fences with ease or rappel down ropes while a teenager is strangling him to death. He works with dead dinosaurs, had never met a live one until that trip, of course. So understanding the bones and surviving the hunting behaviors just seems like a stretch to me. Number two, Tim is a medical marvel. No broken bones after being thrown off a road while in a car and landing in a tree. Then he just kind of hops right back up after being electrocuted. Uh, Yeah, he's hurt his hands and there's a little bit of a limp, but he flew through the air. I'm sorry, but no, Tim is dead. (laughs) Tim has to be dead. Uh, Three, so... So is Ellie. Ellie should be dead too. Ellie gets out of the mechanical room. So she's tasked with going to the mechanical room to try to reboot the system. Um, Dennis Nedry has shut everything down and that's why there's as much chaos as there is, even though I think there would have been chaos anyway. So she goes to to turn everything back on, um, finds out that a velociraptor is trapped in this building with her and he's already taken out Samuel L. Jackson, which is just a a shame. Um, so she's hurt and just has a, a flimsy fence. She gets out of there. She hops, she shuts the door, the mechanical room. She hobbles across this little clearing and shuts this little fence, just chain link fence between her and, and the velociraptor that had been chasing her around this facility. And there are more raptors in the woods because they're about to take out Muldoon. You know, when he says, clever girl. No, Ellie is dead too. She should have been eaten by the other velociraptors that are out there. She doesn't live. And and last but not least, basically, the characters shouldn't have survived because dinosaurs. There are dinosaurs. I don't, I don't care how crafty you are. I don't care how athletic you are. I don't care how smart you are. If a Tyrannosaurus Rex is coming after you and you have never seen a Tyrannosaurus Rex before and you're not completely sure on how to behave, you are dead. You're dead. I mean, am I glad they all lived? Yes, of course, I'm glad they all lived. But it's movie magic that they all lived. And I most definitely would not have. A few more interesting tidbits about the movie. Four major studios placed bids to option Crichton's book. Warner Brothers with Tim Burton um, has as being picked for the director seat Fox for Joe Dante directing Columbia for Richard Donner and finally universal for Spielberg who beat out the other bids paying $1.5 million for the rights plus 500,000 for Crichton to help write the screenplay. According to a documentary titled the making of Jurassic park and adventure 65 million years in the making, the famous T-Rex roar was a composite of a dog penguin Tiger's snarl, alligator's gurgle, and a baby elephant's squeal. I love that. So every time, every time you watch it from here on out, I want you to listen for that penguin. Spielberg oversaw the post-production of the movie via video link while in Poland filming Schindler's List. The 66th Academy Awards was a huge year for Spielberg, winning Best Picture for Schindler, Best Director for Schindler, Best Screenplay for Schindler, Best Score, going to John Williams for Schindler. Best Sound for Jurassic Park. Best Sound Effects, editing for Jurassic Park. Best Art Direction for Schindler. Best Cinematography for Schindler. Best Film Editing for Schindler. And Best Visual Effects for Jurassic Park. To have two different movies in the running and to win that many awards is 
man, that man is good or was good. I don't know if he's still as good. Again, if you ever want to have a drink with me and we talk about what he did with West Side Story, I'm available. Let's go do that. But that is it for today. If you haven't watched Jurassic Park recently, I hope you do. I hope that sense of wonder fills you when the music crescendos and Dr. Grant first lays on eyes on a dinosaur. I mean, it's just, it is a perfect movie moment. Next episode, we're heading into space with Independence Day. Thank you so much for listening. Really, it is so appreciated. If you haven't already, I hope you subscribe so that we can keep going on this journey together. And if you've got the time, it would be awesome if you could rate and review so that other individuals who are as awesome as you and who like to talk about random things with pop culture with someone who doesn't really know what they're talking about, well, then they can join in on the fun as well. Or if you have the time and want to share, that would be awesome too. You can follow me on Instagram and Twitter at at GnomeGirlM and on Facebook as A Bit of Fun with Emily. Go have yourself a bit of fun today and I will see you next time.